This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Well, don't say anything you don't want 10 or 12 people to hear because I just hit record. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about guns. I'm going to listen as you guys geek out on guns a little bit. We're going to talk about long range hunting, which is something I loathe personally. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit, but I want to start out. And Jamie, I've been on your podcast. I wanted to give you a little update on where things are with with hunt quietly uh oh omar's been on the podcast you've been on the podcast before right yeah yeah uh omar's a a hunt quietly contributor if you if we keep doing this stupid shit then he'll be somebody that people tune in get to know so yeah it's been when did we record our episode on your podcast jamie had to have been in the spring yeah yeah what's the name of your podcast uh wolf precision is long range shooting and custom rifle building podcast (laughs) long range shooting is different than long range hunting folks so i like going on other people's podcasts because i can just give my stump speech you know and that's what i did when i came on with you is just give a rundown of all the things that i find antagonistic to hunting so much so that I started my own podcast to bitch and moan about it. But when I have guests on, it's much more stressful because I can't just talk about that stuff because anybody that tunes in is going to hear the same crap every time they came on, you know? So now I just reserve my main talking points for when I have like hunting celebrity sorts of people on. And I want to just debate them a little bit about the effects of media and hunt celebrity and stuff like that. Last night, Jim Durkin and I, other like main podcast host, we interviewed Shane Mahoney. Do you know who he is? Sadly, no. Uh, Omar, you do. I, I'm not sure if I do. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's interesting. Give, give me a hint about who he is. Maybe I do. He lives in Newfoundland. Is it Newfoundland? Newfoundland. That's how you mm-hmm. people say that. And he was a research ecologist for three decades, working on caribou and I don't know what a, a lot of wildlife related stuff. But he started this business called Conservation Visions. And he co-edited and wrote part of a book a few years ago on the North American model of wildlife management. Um, So that was one way in which he's well known. He's considered like a luminary in the hunting sphere, somebody that thinks about the future of hunting a lot, thinks about what hunting means to society. He also has this thing he's been working on since 2015 i think it's called the wild food initiative one i don't know about i couldn't i can't quite figure out what it is entirely but one of the things is quantifying the value of wild foods to society so that those like dollar amounts or those values can be used to entreat 
political leaders to engage in conservation. You know, these wild landscapes that produce these berries, mushrooms, deer, what have you, leeks, the value of that food is blah, blah, blah. And it's for, therefore, it's worth, you know, protecting. So that's who he is in a nutshell. So, yeah, last night I was talking to him and I, I thought he'd be somebody that I could get to that would be forthcoming about their. I thought that he would agree with some of the things that I find distasteful. And what what did, what kind of reaction did you get? Very measured. Yeah. Very measured and very rel- like tiptoed around stuff. Like you know, he wrote this book about the North American model. One of the tenets of the North American model is equal access or democracy. It's worded a bunch of different ways. Access to game is owned by the people and they should have access to it for hunting. And I think that hunting media, like when I say hunting media, I mean media that portrays hunting. I think it's bad for that. I think it's free advertising for people that want to lease out their land or sell their land. You know, I always talk about that. And I thought I could get him to go along with that. I mean, there's entire TV shows based around that, like showing you hunting content, then trying to get you to sell property or go with a guide that's leased up a bunch of land. And, but he, he wouldn't go any very far with that. He wouldn't, he wasn't, he was tiptoeing around that big time. Mm-hmm. And then like, I couldn't even get him to uh, agree with my belief that the hunting culture is being eroded. Our values are being eroded by people that are widely followed and considered leaders that shoot. I mean, their annual harvest is measured by the ton, you know, and I couldn't get him to agree with me on, on that either. So then I get to thinking like, man, if somebody that bright and he's extremely articulate, that's been in the space for so long, he did say one thing interesting. He said, he's worried about, he thinks that whenever some, a hunter puts themselves above the animal, that that's a problem. He said, he's worried about that for 25 years about people, you know, elevating themselves. Like when they show a hunting picture, it's more about them than the animal. Well, isn't that, isn't that the whole premise of hunting social media? Yeah, I think it yeah. is. I mean, people yeah, yeah. Try, try to make like it's their, try, they're telling their story and. But it's their story. Celebration. Not- yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I've often yeah. thought about starting a social media, uh, Instagram page devoted to grip and grins, but without the grip and grinner, just devoting all of the pixels to the animal Hmm. or black out the person's face. And then like, nobody would submit stuff to it. You know, it'd be something that like, ideally anybody could submit something to, but nobody would submit anything to that. And you know it Mm -hmm. because without them, their identity. This, they need the recognition. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, anytime you have the money involved in it in an industry, they don't want to get themselves on the outside and you have a cancel culture that will just 
you know, lose uh, legitimacy or friends or income or grants or like we had a, a client here that has um, property in Iowa and there's a famous TV show, Husband and Wife. And he was talking about um, their multi-million dollar. See, even you do it. Yeah. <laughs> so he's talking about their multi-million dollar home and he got to tour their half million dollar earth roamer. And I said to him, I'm like, I don't know how you make that much money. And I, I get it that it's entertainment. I don't know how you don't produce a product and, and make millions of dollars. I, for me, I, as, as an entrepreneur who's worked my butt off, I'm like, boy, I must have missed something 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Cause there's I, no I, tangible goods there that are, people are paying for. Yeah. yeah. And so they're in that industry and they won't, they won't shoot themselves in the foot, but it's just amazing the amount of money that's there. I think that's, everybody wants a piece of it. Um, and everybody's, it's just, the way it works across every industry, even in our gun industry. So it's writers don't write a bad review by a, for anyone that's in a, a gun magazine because that's their next meal. Oh, uh-huh. so, right. Yeah. Look what happened to Jim Zumbo. Yeah. Do you know about that? Omar, or is that before your time? Cause you're a youngster Before my time, <laughs> man, man, I'm kind of surprised because you guys, you're a guy that's got your finger on the pulse pretty damn well these days. Yeah. How old are you? 32. I was just wondering when that happened. Do you remember, Jamie? I do not. And I don't remember a lot of the details. So Jim Zumbo was a well-known writer for hunting magazines. And he had his own TV show. And some number of years ago, oh. It was 2007. Man, that was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, so th- how old? You said 32? Yeah, I think 2007 was the first year I got a hunting license. Okay. So he said something. And this is way before the term cancel culture was ever coined. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, oh, for sure. When did cancel? It was kind of like around the same time as the me too movement emerged on the scene what cancel culture no i think it's always been around they just didn't put a name to it until recently right yeah well i think they put a new a name to it because it just became a way more prevalent phenomenon Mm -hmm. you know but uh jim zumbo said some negative things about ars and oh no it was 2004 with my first year First license. Oh, okay. So, so he said some negative things about ARs, and I don't remember the details. Maybe he said they're not like they're not appropriate to be hunting with. And man, he lost all his sponsor. He used to be on High Country Jerky, like the seasoning mix that you'd buy to make jerky. Lost, lost everything, everything with that like some small number of statements he made yeah it's a different world right now for sure it's always been but now it's just they want to destroy you and yeah um but yeah it's it's a pretty amazing industry um for how it runs and operates yeah so i always i just thought that i would be construed as a breath of fresh air in this space because I'm completely unconstrained in what I could say. And another thing I thought was that 
I was going to give voice to something many, many people thought. But God, has it not turned out to be true? Well, it depends on your perspective. I'm sure it is. It's a breath of fresh air to people that have similar views. But the the people that are already involved in the industry is, I mean, you're you're hitting them in their wallet, so they're not going to be on board. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I was thinking there's way way more people that hunt and don't make money off hunting than people that hunt and do make money off hunting yeah and i so i thought i would be i thought people i'd be i didn't care about being construed as a force for good or getting any praise i still don't i just thought that people would be very enthusiastic about what i said because it's what they also believe like i didn't go into this thing trying to change hearts and minds i can't went into this thinking that I was going to build like a coalition of people that had always thought the same things, but man, has it turned out to be a minority viewpoint. Yeah. But, um, these are the same people that will complain when they go hunting and there's 35 people, you know, on top of them or somebody's in their spot or, um, when I first heard about the leasing stuff in Pennsylvania for, you know, it was our, our family farm, uh, that my uncle has. Um, my grandfather grew up there and I have to say, I was, when I first heard it, I thought, you know what, that ain't too bad of an idea. Maybe I'll approach my uncle and say, look, I'm going to give you X amount of dollars to get all these people off the property that, that are the troublemakers that are cussing you out because you're too close to them when you've hunted that property for, for 35 years or for the people road hunting, you know, just driving randomly by. So I thought, you know, if nothing else, at least I'll have a nice place that I can go and then have some peace and quiet and enjoy hunting rather than being on top of uh, a lot of people and especially uh, how people act sometimes in, in public hunting snares. There's a very selfish mentality. Everybody's out to get the deer, you know, or whatever they're doing. But so when I first heard about it, in some ways, you know, if you have enough negative reactions to being in crowded with people who are the same people who cut you off in the drive through or cut you off in a shopping cart line. You know, I can see why some people would want to get away from that. At first, I thought, well, actually, I can see why people would want to do it just just to get away from crazy and to have at least some solitude, you know, especially on like small family farms. It used to be a dream of mine when I was a young man, just like you're describing. It was like yeah. a dream of mine growing up in Michigan that I would someday lease my own farm <laughs> yeah it's so weird this is such a weird thing yeah i've had people try to throw me off my uncle's property I've, i grew up on it um i picked potatoes on it and i literally had a guy asking who i was and throwing me off <laughs> and i was like oh. I left, yeah i left him go for about five minutes and then i was like um, who are you you know like like dude this is my grandfather grew up <laughs> on this farm you know yeah um, yeah, yeah, so, I mean, it's just that brazen, you know, so I can see how people sort of get tired. I, I haven't deer hunted here in Pennsylvania in a while simply because it's just so overrun. And I think it sometimes it brings out the worst of people. And it's just, I'd rather varmint hunt or an apple tree on a quiet afternoon all by myself or with a friend than be trampled to death into the woods, especially yeah. here in PA. So yeah, yeah, I guess that yeah. part of it I can see. But out west, big game hunting, I can see, you know, I can see both sides of why some people would 
would opt for it. But I also see when there's a dollar to be made and there's people with thick wallets, that's where the trouble gets in it. It now it becomes a commodity. And yeah, I can I can see where that just gets out of control and the average person loses the ability to hunt. Because you guys here we have white tailed deer that I mean if you get something that's impressive, it's it's not we don't have the trophy animal like that to have another so I don't think so. But out west people pay, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars to go on an elk hunt. If they got the opportunity to buy into land, I could see where people could profiteer off that. And they don't want bothered. They would they would rather write the check and have a private place to go. And so they become the middleman or the broker. I can I can see how that could definitely cause a lot of issues for sure. Yeah. It costs uh, sixty thousand dollars to hunt tule elk in California. Oh wow. Because it's the last place to shoot a tule elk. It's the last natural habitat, you know. Now, and, is that for the license or is that just because it's all on private private ground or how does that work or guided? Well, you can guides? actually that's that's private land. That's if you want to get guided on private land. You can draw a tag, but the odds are astronomical, gotta be. Yeah. You mm-hmm. have to be max point holder. So if you didn't start putting in 30 years ago, you're not gonna you, you don't have a chance. Wow. But if you wanna if you wanna push the easy button, you can go pay sixty thousand dollars to a reputable guide and they'll take you, you know, you can shoot one. Yeah, Joe Rogan shot one a few years ago. Oh, I think he shot more than one. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a ranch. There's a ranch down there that that he's been on a few times. So where I start to scratch my head, and this is not what we're going to talk about all night. You know, we're gonna we're gonna talk a, about guns and and long range hunting and stuff like that. But I look at like I can't uh, just how little I could get so uh, a leader like with so much integrity as Shane Mahoney to move. And then I start thinking, I think two things. I think Matt, are you are you off base in your views? That's one thing. And then I also think, are you wasting your time? So I don't know if you guys ever tried to build a movement or you have a gift for predicting the future. Like <laughs> is this going anywhere? Does it have a chance to go anywhere? Go ahead, Jamie. Hmm. Some people don't want to put on their chump hat in a crowded room, you know? Yeah. You got a point. But yeah. Matt, I, I mean, how long have you been doing it? A year and a half. Yeah, you got you got patience. Patience is a virtue. I mean, look, look what you what did you start with? You and just you and Jim at first? It, at first it was just me. Okay, just you. And now what we got like I don't know how 13. many people we have. Thirteen guys, thirteen guys and gals. So I mean it's yeah, growing. That's true. And these people are smart, man. Yeah. So you just you know, we're yeah. we're getting there. We're getting okay. there. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Omar man. That we <laughs> we can definitely move on now. That's what I need. I just need yeah. a little bit of a add a boy once in a while. Or yeah. like a you know, chin up, dude. Chin up. It's all right. It might, you know, when you came on the podcast and talked a little bit, I thought you made pretty good sense. You're trying to, if you don't at least protect some of the property for the average guy to get out there, you're just going to force them on smaller and smaller islands. And it's been complained that we have customers here complaining about going out west with it. So it's bringing attention to it. Other probably people don't want to talk about it, or there are lots of people that don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yep. As near as I can tell, about 50% of the hunting takes place on private land. So you could see where the hunt quietly concerns could just 
seem completely foreign to some people. Yeah. 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 It doesn't, doesn't apply. It's nothing that they're ever going to see or worry about. Uh, So then like a little bit of an update, Jamie, on what's happened with our other endeavor hunters for access. I've been trying to get you to donate us a gun to raffle off next winter. We had nine work projects this summer in Eastern Montana. I mean, we're the first chapter and we've only been in existence about eight months. And we had 25 volunteers and uh, they, we had people, we had a, a guy from Colorado come up. Oh, good. We had a, a guy and his dad from Washington come over people from all over the state and we did nine work projects fixing fence tearing down built an old building uh picking up some trash uh doing some construction projects on one place yard work for some elderly folks and it was very well received the landowners that are enrolled in our block management group program that we did the work on they were very very grateful so i've feel like that that's a positive a few other things we there's a chapter in kansas now i say that almost on every episode and they're up and running they seem very motivated i got a phone call tomorrow night with some folks in utah that are talking about starting a chapter i've had eight or nine people reach out to me now from minnesota and they're all i put them all in touch with each other and they're talking so I don't know. I think that that could turn into something. Um, and the Kansas, Kansas, Kansas chapter was, I think the podcast you guys did before we hadn't formed Kansas, but now can Kansas is on board, right? Yeah. Kansas is up and running. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then what we're going to be doing this winter is the core hunt quietly group. There are also hunters for access people. We're going to do a fundraising campaign where we we reach out to companies in the hunting industry and ask them for donations, and then we're going to try to raise money. Uh, we're going to be asking for gear that we raffle off, and then take them, and then we'll have a pot of money. And the idea is to distribute that equally among uh, the chapters, so that it can that money can be used for appreciation gifts for farmers and ranchers and other large large landowners that allow public access through state-run programs. So anyway, that's that's where we are. And we're greeted with a lot of enthusiasm with the Hunters for Access stuff. And then we get mixed marks on the Hunt Quietly thing. So we talked about this a little on your podcast. I want to jump into this now. I want to give you guys a an opportunity to talk guns. Um, and we want to, I want you, I want you to tell, let's start out with this. I was going to say, let's talk long range hunting, but let's tell us about your company. So one thing that on quietly is keen on is supporting small companies that fly under the radar and they don't have armies of influencers trying to sell shit. And you're one of those companies. So tell us about your what you value as a company, what you're, what you're providing to the consumer, that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, I mean, our, 
our goal or, or our mission is always to bring happiness to people's lives through marksmanship and accuracy. I mean, that's just what we always have done. Um, we're 17 years old. We've been doing this a long time, trying to come up with better ways to build rifles, more accurate. So I shot competitively, did a lot of time military, law enforcement, police, cert, all that stuff. Grew up shooting varmints before I was even a teenager and long range varmint hunting. And then just started making rifles and figuring out how to make them better than everybody else rather than copying best practices, coming up with better ways. Uh, the industry's been dead for ingenuity for a long time. You can get a new colored stock, but the core rifle has been the same for a hundred years. And then coming up with a way to make it repeatable. So it's not a custom one off every time we build a rifle. So we worked uh, through the process of making an extreme accurate rifle and finding the rules of the road. And then the last missing piece, besides what we're working on right now, we have another, another patenting process, but was um, making the chamber um, a part of the rifle rather than the service. And so it allows us to make a better quality chamber, reusable product, and create a, what we would consider like a kit rifle. So you can build it yourself, you can maintain it yourself, you can change the parts yourself. And when you're done with a, a rifle barrel, you don't throw the barrel or the chamber away, you actually take your barrel off and replace it, but use the same chamber and get the same repeatable accuracy. So you can, you can rebuild the rifle and have it in like new condition 30 times and it will perform the same every single time. And that's new. That for us. Yeah. So we've been working on it for uh, about seven years. Um, we've had a lot of government agencies interested in it. We built prototypes. Uh, some of the testing, we've doubled their accuracy or better. So double, like they could shoot a they could shoot a one inch group, and now they can shoot a half inch group. Well, one of the things we weren't allowed to do is uh, we we're not allowed to publicly say because it's it's using the government agencies for for advertising. No, I mean, but, I'm just saying that's the definition of doubling their accuracy. Oh, that, we we did so much better than that. So, uh, one of the government agencies, their their uh, accuracy acceptability is 0.9 to 1.1 inches. Our rifles. Two different rifles, 10 different types of ammunition, averaged uh, 0.3 to 0.4. Wow. What kind of what kind of ammunition? Is it just regular, like NATO? Everything you can think of to stuff that the... So there's barrier penetrators that are just known to not shoot better than an inch. I mean, the factory says these are 1.1 these are inch capable at best. Um, our rifle shot them in the 0.4s. Wow. Yeah, so we're really excited. Did you know about this innovation, Omar? Yeah. You did? Okay. Yeah, that, that that's going on the rifle that he's building for me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, so now we're just growing um, and working on. We have a, another process to hopefully potentially increase the barrel life about 50 or 80%, um, which is a big deal for longevity for the type of shooting that we do. But, yeah, so we're just... We're the we're the the toy makers. We're the guys in the back that love to figure stuff out and make it better. That's really what we do. Yeah, that's rewarding. That's rewarding stuff, man. What is Matt? Did you know that he he runs a shooting school as well? Yes. Okay, yeah. I was going to ask you, Jamie, how much? What percentage of the company is the shooting school, and what percentage is the custom rifle building? So we limit the shooting school to about thirteen classes a year now. Um, and we limit five students per class because I teach all of them. Uh -huh. um, so it's a good portion. It helps pay for a lot of the innovations and patents and legal stuff that we get into. With, uh, but it's probably 
you know, 20% of our business. But the nice part is, is a lot of them that come through the school end up buying rifles, even though we don't use the school as a sales pitch. Right. Um, we get the rifles in our hand, they run them for three days and they're like, yeah, mm-hmm. this is pretty cool. <laughs> I want one. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's how it usually works. The big thing was, is, um, getting the rifles to an affordable area. So the machines that we use are world-class machines. Um, they're Akumas, so they're made in Japan. Um, most people in our industry use very inexpensive machines so they can just barely get by with. But we're using the very best equipment to drive the cost of the rifles down to get them affordable too. So rather than selling on branding, which is, you know, most of your major manu- you know, high-end custom builders, they're just very inefficient manufacturers with a nameplate. We're now able to not only outshoot them, but we can offer a rifle that's about half that cost and a better quality. So we always said that there's more people to pull up to a higher quality rifle than pull down from the branding. Uh, there's a much bigger market and, um, you know, we know we can outshoot them, but we also have to make it affordable. Um, and so that's everything that we've been working on now is getting production up. And we're doing that actually through better quality machines, getting uh, better performance with the equipment, getting uh, faster turnaround times, but holding better tolerances because the machines are so capable. Um, so it's pretty neat. Are those the same machines that uh, Bruce uh, Thom has? They're very similar. For the listening audience, who is the who's Bruce Tom? He's the owner of Bat Machine Actions. Okay. Yeah. I'm not a gu- I'm I'm not a gun guy. I just use guns to slow down animals so that I can cook and eat. Them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I mainly bow hunt. But I saw so yeah. when I interject in this, it's just only so people like me can follow along. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So Bruce, Bruce and his company make the best receivers in the world. They're world renowned. They hold more world records in accuracy. They're the oldest custom action maker in the world, actually. Um, they use a, a lot of really high end machines. Um, the machine that we're using here in the East Coast is equivalent to what they use there, but a different brand. They, they have world class machines, but the service for those machines aren't as good in our area. And then we oh. got the opportunity to purchase what that would be a competitor to them um, here. I see. That's just more based in our area, but still, yeah, certainly world-class. There's, um, if you can think of anything in surgical space, um, aerospace engineering, um, medical tooling, Akuma and Mazak own it. And Akuma is probably the best in the world, I think, at what they do. But that always comes at a price too. It's um, you buy one machine compared to buying five of the other throwaway machines. Right, <laughs> right, know? yeah, so, yeah, man. You're investing in quality. Yeah, it's, it gets a little on the on the painful side. But Bruce and them really are good at what they do. But they're really strong supported in the machines that they use out there too. How did you guys get to know each other, you and Bruce? So um, Bruce and Daryl, probably twenty years ago. Uh, got to know each other. We do a lot of hunting, shooting, varmint hunting. Um, we we um, we got to know each other through some common friends. We brought some receivers in, and um, eventually wound up that saying, "Hey, let's partner up and bring a 700 clone into our world, but made to bat tolerances of what they do with their benchrest receivers." And it became a small project and uh, turned into you know 17 years later, end up using them. So. 20 years ago, I would say the Varmint Hunters Association is probably where we met. Uh, it was a big, long-range uh, varmint hunting organization in South Dakota. Um, and then Daryl brought us on through our shooting school and 
started working some projects from there. Nice. I I don't think so. I want to ask a question about um, marksmanship. I don't think of I don't think of archery and rifle as fundamentally different. I think of them as extremely similar in terms of the mental process of executing a good shot. Would Would you agree with that first? But as like that's a lead up to what I want to ask. Yeah, um, I would tell you that. For new shooters that are getting into marksmanship, if they come from a handgun background or archery, they take to, to marksmanship like with a rifle, like a duck to water. It's oh. all they need is the formula. They need to, they just need to know the processes. They already know how critical attention to detail is. And it's just off the races they go. It's amazing actually to watch because uh, in a day or two, they'll give people that's been doing it for decades a run for their money. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's great to hear. That's that's really cool. So I'm only asking it from the standpoint of archery because I practice with my bow nearly every day and I practice with a rifle. This is embarrassing to admit, but right before I'm going to go hunting with a rifle. Oh, and, no. You know, and, <laughs> and then like, well, I don't shoot far, you know. I used to be better with it. I used to shoot yeah. 350 yards. Like I've killed some antelope at 350 yards, which I, this is 20 years ago, which I thought was pretty good. But, uh, you know, now it's like, I wouldn't shoot much past, I don't know, 250 probably, but th- this is neither here nor there. Here's what I wanted to ask. Do you find either of you guys that your performance varies considerably Day to day with shooting. Yeah, now I'll let you take that one first, Omar, if you want. Um, I I mean I know when I'm having an off day and I'll just stop because I know it's me and it's not the rival. Otherwise, because the problem is with me is if I keep on continuing even when I'm having an off day, I'll start throwing so many variables into the equation, and it could be next from, thing you know you're you, adjusting your sight. Well, not even just my sight. I, I I dive in all the way to my reloads, and then I'm like, oh, maybe this rifle barrel's no good anymore. I there's just too many variables, and but then I realize, you know, what I've produced before with the same exact rifle and same exact ammunition. So I know it's me, and I'll just call it a day and come back on another day and and continue. So that's really the separation between um, what why people seek out higher end rifles or even custom rifles is that they want to be able to separate what's them and the rifle. They want to know that it's them having a bad day. Because when they start questioning their equipment, we call it sticking your head in a bucket, and you never come out the same. Like, (laughs) as soon as you start questioning stuff, you're already in big trouble. Um, So I would say that's, I mean, that's what got me into building rifles is um, I was so over the top that I wanted to know everything was right. I mean, everything. Um, Because I wanted to have confidence in equipment because I was competing. That, that there was nothing there that I had to be worried about. And I always felt that I could do a better job than anybody else. I mean, because it's mine. I would care about it. And so I learned the whole process um, from start to finish and started building them and it turned into a business. But yeah, the exact advice mentioned is you you want to you wanna know that hey, if it's just a bad day, just throw it over your shoulder and just have fun. And, you know, you're not beating yourself up or worried that something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. When you double down on a bad day, and keep shooting oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> some people don't have the mental wherewithal either I, I've, I've seen people just 
they just lose their marbles. It's um, I they need to take up other hobbies, probably not golf or archery. It need to be like um, I don't know, Zen stuff because they get stressed out or not having a good day, and it's just it gets into their head and it's they're gone. Yeah, it's fun to watch. <laughs> not fun <laughs> to hang around though. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. yeah, the dominoes start falling. It got what got me on this is like I just walked out the door this morning and I've been shooting good and I'm about to go hunting for a month. You know, like I'll probably take a little break in the middle, but I I launched one over the target at 40 yards and I, you know, I shoot 50, 60 yards. And what in the hell did you just do? You know, and and then the other two arrows I shot weren't that great either. And I, I, I uh, then I came home tonight and it was everything was back to normal. There's just so much psychological stuff involved in shooting. I feel like it, it is, it is for sure. Um, we just did. We had a customer call and asking about. Um, he's getting ready to go to his first match and panicking. And I said, "Why are you out practicing five days before the match? You know your stuff's okay." So I, I did a whole whole podcast talking about like. Stay away from once you're squared away a week or two out, five days out, the day before a match. That is horrible timing to go out and just check everything. Oh, why you know, is that? It, it, oh, they, if something goes wrong or a shock goes oh, crazy, they panic. And you're just, you're spinning. Yeah, then you're mentally yeah. spinning. Then. And then you'll shank the next shot because it's getting in your head and you're worried. And then it just goes to hell in a handbag. Yeah, bad. Some people shouldn't be in that area. You're weak out, and things are going good. Try to avoid, you know, practicing at the last minute or just running to the range one more time to check stuff. Um, it usually doesn't end well. Okay, that's interesting. So, Jamie, I'm building my first on my own, sort of. You know, I'm getting. I'm. I, I can't really say building. I hate when people say building when it's really just assembling. So I'm assembling. Right. It's like I'm when people say they're first. building a house. Yeah. <laughs> what they mean by that is they're hiring all the contractors. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Right. So, uh, so my plan is, is uh, I want to start. Do you know anything about NRL Hunter matches? I do. No, I've never shot any, but actually, if I was to compete maybe next year a little bit, that would be my go-to. Yeah. I think they really got. That's what I'm going to do. They got that in. Yeah, that's what I'm I'm planning on getting involved in. And there's like a power factor. Do you know about that with those mm-hmm. matches? Yeah. So the the basically the minimum cartridge you need is a 25 Creedmoor, which is what I'm gonna build. Um now is that just for the hunting class or is that well, for across the board? It's across the board unless you're doing unless you're doing the one day events. The the actual two day matches, you have to have a minimum power factor mm-hmm. of three hundred and eighty thousand, which is Muzzle velocity times bullet weight, you know? So none of the six millimeters, none of the six millimeters, unless you're shooting them at like 3,500 feet per second are going to make the power factor. All right. So the lightest recoiling cartridge is pretty much the 25. And mostly everybody shoots 6.5s or 268 Remingtons or 260 Ackleys. But I liked, I like mm-hmm. the, I don't know why I have like an affinity towards the, the quarter bores. So I, I, um, I'm going to do that 25 freed more. I got a, uh, Kelbley, Nanook, short action. Mm-hmm. Um, on the barrel, I, I talked to Bartline today, and, and they're going to get a blank out to me in like six to eight weeks. So that's pretty good. I mean, everybody else is out like 12, eight, 12 months. Um, but what do you think about 
the uh, light Palma contour. All right, a little bit of a breakdown for the layman because I am completely lost. <laughs> All right, where do where do we start? Yeah, so as you answer this question, because you <laughs> like take it from the perspective of somebody that kind of knows where the trigger is and and where to put the stock on their shoulder. <laughs> so the just the the taper of the barrel and the the palmas. Are you you're going with a light palma contour? Yeah, because my my thinking is. I want a light palma because I'll I'll have a little bit of a balance more rearward, so it'll balance out the mm-hmm. it'll balance out the suppressor on the front. You know what I mean? What was your muzzle diameter? The, Do you know your muzzle diameter? It'll be seven fifty. Mm-hmm. Are you going to thread it for a suppressor? Yeah, that's what I mean. That's why I want. That's why I thought my thinking was the palma has more weight towards the shank, mm-hmm. which will balance. It'll balance it more since I'm putting a a can on the front. You know what I mean? It does, yeah, and it's actually more rigid a little bit because the the palma di- the way that they draw out is usually the shank is one two fifteen diameter mm-hmm. and three inches long, uh, where the first initial heavy uh, portion of the barrel is, and then it starts to a long second taper and then your final taper. Mm-hmm. So the very rear of the barrel is a little bit more rigid because you've got more meat there. We're like a Remington seven hundred barment. The shank diameter of the barrel right in front of the receiver is one two fifty mm-hmm. but point seven inches long. Mm-hmm. So you've got this quick taper yeah. and you get a lot more harmonics and shake out of it. So we use the Palma contour. It's uh we call it a wolf precision number seven, but it's a medium heavy Palma okay. for our our heavier rifles. But it's I like the Palma contour a lot actually. I think it's a more rigid design. Yeah, it was it's between it it was between either a, a light palma or a number five or number four, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think so Matt, sorry to to jump ahead, but what we're what we're talking about now is is basically the the contour of the barrel. So the barrels, you know, from the manufacturers, they they they're not just as you can get a straight solid barrel with no taper, but in order to save weight, they taper it, you know, down to the muzzle. So it's not the same thickness all the way from the action all the way to the muzzle tip, you know. Yes. And the the contour is decided by what the purpose of the rifle is so like if you're hunting and you're purely only hunting you go with like a sporter which is really skinny at the end um but if you're getting into target like there's we're talking about a palma which is predominantly for target but you can there's a light palma which is lighter and you can use it for hunting as well okay so it's it's the it's the the rate at which the barrel thins as you move towards the muzzle mm-hmm. yeah yeah so um the rear of the barrel is thicker and longer it's like having um a stick that's much beefier at the back and then thins out quick you can't get the whip around as much or if you take a a long stick of the same diameter or thin and you start to wave around it, it really flexes and moves so i think it, it's like a tuning fork for the barrel i think palma is really um this is my opinion but i think i think palma is have a tendency to put that more rigidity back towards the receiver. That's your flex point. I think you're doing the right choice there for sure. Okay. Um, and what about plus P throats? No, you ain't going to like it. I have a feeling you don't like them. What's a uh, plus P? Yeah. You never, you, mean, you never heard of a plus P throat? No. Tell us, tell the list, tell the listener what a throat is. Jamie, you can explain it. Yeah, so the, the freeboard, um, you've got to give the bullet a chance to start into the barrel. So they'll cut a freeboard, which is bigger than the diameter of the bullet. 
and then it'll cut the throat, which is a, usually like a, a taper. I uh, think of like an 11 degree tape or something where the bullet funnels into the rifling softly. So they consider that the throat, the throat and in front of we're the We're talking about um, to feed the. Now we're talking the about the inside of the barrel, like the chamber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The chamber, right. So the plus P is it's just a longer throat. It's basically they shave the landings, the lands, right? And it gives it a running start. So the, the lands at the, at, at the beginning of the throat are. I don't know how to explain it very well, but it's basically, you're not the same diameter. The lands are bigger. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it gives mm-hmm. it a running start. There's basically you have a lower pressure chamber. So you can, you can high, jack up the pressure on your loads and your chamber can handle it because it's not, there's not so much pressure at the beginning. Are you talking, is it like a game twist? Like we're starting at a slower no, twist? And no, it's the same, or it's the same just, twist. It's no. just, the, there's material milled out mm-hmm. where the lands and the grooves start. Where it first starts, there's material milled out, so it's not as tight. That's right. So then, when the bullet when the bullet jumps, it's not hitting. It's not encountering that pressure. Like you're not hitting the lands. You are in the lands. Yeah, Quickly. you're in the lands more slowly, so that you can you're you can plus p your your rounds, and then so you can have so you more velocity. Yeah, if you if you don't jam your bullets into the lands early or tight, um, you you don't get the pressure spike of the initial firing. Right? Um, yeah, it's. I mean, oh, there's there's all of these things always play themselves out in the wash as to how much benefit yeah. you get from it. And I don't have enough experience with it. And we used to do a lot of uh, longer freebore throats mm-hmm. um, t- to deal with that. Weatherby did it years ago with really long throats that bullets would jump hundreds of thousands. And um, found that the accuracy was there. I think Market Short Action Customs did a whole study on it that said that Weatherby had it right. Yeah. So this, it's been around for a while. Yeah. Well, you uh, don't, I just didn't. You, know you never heard of Defensive Edge? Mm, I've heard of them. Mm-hmm. That they they really kind of kicked that whole thing off because like all their all their Terminator cartridges, those are all they're all that plus P throating. Mm-hmm. But now it's I think I think maybe the patent wore out and now other people are doing it is what was what's going on. So. Mm. Yeah, and I just always caution, like, um, just to throw it out there, you know, just to always be careful with, um, with brass and yeah. failures and mm-hmm. pressure. The, uh, uh, we've always known a lot of people over the years that try to win with speed and, um, and then they get themselves into trouble with loading really hot loads or something silly. And then suppressors don't help. You know what? The, the reason why I'm doing it is because I don't want, a, a super long barrel. And I don't think the power factor mm-hmm. of the, match NRL matches what's really limiting me and if I can't you can't get the speeds up and I want you know the maximum length of a barrel that I'll shoot with a suppressor is 23 I'm not going to shoot a 24 inch barrel with a 7 inch can it's just unbelievable so mm-hmm. if I want a 23 or 22 inch barrel I have to plus P the throat to assure that I can get the velocity and if if I end up see, it's mm-hmm. like it's a variable though because I don't know until I get the rifle until it's built so mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if I end up getting it and I don't have to overpressure, I don't want to be even close to pressure, to be honest with you, because different weather, whatever at the match, if you know, mm-hmm. so that's the reason that I'm going to go down this, this road. And if it ends up that I think it might, the barrel life might suffer a little bit because you're burning more powder. And if it does, if it does, so mm-hmm. be it. I mean, barrels, barrels are interchangeable. So. 
Yeah, and, and there's other ways too. If you, it's the power factor. Sometimes I, I wonder. I know they were doing on the hunting class, but um, the, in the open match class, I, I guess it levels the playing field between the smaller calibers and the higher calibers for sure. But I, I would say that that um, I don't know. I wish they wouldn't do that because I think somebody, a kid running a two twenty three or a small recoil, and let them go have fun yeah. and compete in it. Um, but I don't think that's much gaming, but. Yeah, uh, you can HBN coach your bullets. That helps d- drop your pressure a little bit as well. Um, and um, I guess the, the caution of back pressure from suppressors that can cause some back pressure, increase your pressure. Yeah, but do you do you notice that suppressors typically give you more muzzle velocity? Usually about thirty feet per second. Okay, because um, you have that little bit of push left in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, interesting. Um, I'd be curious to see how it works out for you. I know. One of the things we're trying to solve is um, the last uh, is trying to work with the burning out of the barrel so quickly, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's what we're actually currently working on. And it, it's not a um, it's not a coding or anything. It's actually a mechanical process that we're trying to get about fifty percent or more barrel life out of a barrel um, because we shoot um, twenty two creeds and other things that aren't so friendly when you're shooting them really fast. They burn the barrels yeah. up pretty quick, so. Even the it's another problem to solve. Even the six six millimeter crees, I heard they're they're pretty good at burning barrels. Yeah, some people say a thousand rounds and they're switching yeah. their barrels out, which is good for business. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> 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 you know, we're not going to say that it might be counterproductive to be getting our barrels lasting longer. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, that, well, that's fifth. That's fifty boxes of cartridges. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. fun. That's fifty right. boxes of fun, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I'd be curious how the, the loads work out, how the, the accuracy testing goes. I don't have a lot of experience with the 25 Creed, so I couldn't, you know, give, I would love to hear like the baseline of, of what, where it was with something else, but I'd love to hear your follow-ups once you get it and get it running. Yeah. I'll keep and you then posted. I'll do some research on this as well. Yeah. Cool. I'll keep you posted on it. The last right, thing so- on it is just that there's, they're getting a lot, they're getting a lot more support from, from bullet man- manufacturers and stuff for the 25 cal. Because there hasn't really been, mm-hmm. especially heavy 25 cals. Like, I'm planning to shoot the 133 burgers or the 135 burgers, which is heavier than anything that they have been, you know. Because typically, typically yeah. what you have like a 25 out six is, is the most, most popular or like a 257 Roberts. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not, they're not that popular. No. Even, even the 25 Creedmoor, I guess you can kind of consider it a wildcat because you have to hand load for it, you know. Yeah, and you got crazy BCs with those weights too. Yeah, I got which is a big deal. Right here, there's these are the 133 burgers. I think they're 0.613 G1. Yeah, that's wow. That's really good. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, for a 25 caliber, it's really good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we started out talking about access and fomenting revolutions, and how you can tell if you're making progress. Then we went into a little bit on material science physics as it applies to firearms. So then I thought we'd, we'd end on a little bit on ethics and man, that's a lot of asking people that do a lot of mental gymnastics to uh, follow a discussion that includes those three dimensions but there's got to be like one or two guys out there listening that understood everything we were talking about (laughs) (laughs) oh i gather that the hunt quietly group are there's several of you guys 
that are gun geeks like Phil. Yeah, Phil. But he's out shooting. I, he's probably shooting an elk right now as we speak. Well, he's he's hunting with his friend, archery. Yeah. And, well, I don't know if he's, I don't think he's even hunting because he has a rifle permit. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, that's right. And then Jim Durkin knows a lot about guns, too. So, uh, no, it's it's really impressive. So, yeah, like, Jamie, where do you, have you thought about, like, do you have a well-developed a viewpoint on long-range hunting? Yeah, the, the marksmanship side of it always applies. Um, and I try to, I've been to shows where I've had people come up to me and say that they are trying to engage elk at 2,000 yards. What? And for me, on yeah, and I actually followed up with somebody that knew these people, and they said it was legit. And I'd ask the people, I'm like, that's over a mile. Yeah, and big calibers too. Um, so when I asked them, I'm like, so, so how are you calling the wind? And they're like, well, we'll shoot at a tree left of the animal come on the yard so it won't startle them, and they'll use that to make their wind calls. And I said, well, how do you know if you hit them? Because I can't imagine how much energy these calibers have, and well, if they don't hunch up or, you know, it doesn't look like we hit them, then we just chalk it up. So there's parts of it like that that I try to let people do their own thing. Um, for me personally, though, I know as a marksman how hard it is to hit stuff at distance. Like for me, long range shooting, especially um, at animals, I would at 700 yards and beyond, especially if you're less than stable positions, that's. Even good marksmanship will struggle to get to keep their percentages up. So I try to. That's a question. One of my questions that I wanted to ask you is what, how far before the variables are too unpredictable? Like what range before the variables are too unpredictable? So part of it has to do with position. And so you're going to limit yourself with if you're shooting prone and really stable, then of course it changes a little bit of distance. But I would say. I always say that training is 700 yards and in, 700 yards and out is application of skill set. So we're, we're putting our skills to test because beyond 700 yards, we don't have any good senses, feelings. We, we've got, we've got nothing out there, um, to tell us what the wind's doing, how things are moving. Uh, we're, we're sort of only visual at that point. And so 700 in is where we train. And I would say most of you are really good marksmen. You know, they, they probably like for me personally, five, six hundred yards. If it was a really great position to shoot from, this is me personally. Um, I shot my elk at 645 just because it was prone and I used my rifle all summer long shooting, uh, woodchucks at 1100 yards with it and taking my own hunting rifle to matches and actually placed and won in some matches with it. So my rifle is much more capable at distance, but kind of keep my shots within reason. My goal was 500 and in. Um, I did take a little bit longer shot, but that was because the conditions were perfect for it. Um, but yeah, I would say where, where their hits will fall apart is as soon as you get six and seven, the, the rules of the road are like this. The it's, it's 500 yards, 700 yards and a thousand yards. Most people can get the 500 yards pretty quickly and easily and score pretty good hits reasonably. As soon as they go from five to seven, the rules change and things tighten up. So, you know, accuracy is. Uh, or long range shooting is marksmanship applied at distance. And so your errors are just multiplied like crazy. And then 700 to a thousand, the rules change again. Um, and the fact that there's much more nuances and details and fundamentals and your errors are multiplied times 10, you know, not five. 
and having that self-discipline and all the things that you have to be doing with the rifle and touching the rifle and feeling the rifle where your eyes can't see, you know, it's all by feelings at that point. It's, it's hard for most people. It's, it's great. And it's fun to watch. I can, we've had 14 year old kids. Uh, we had one this year already beat a retired army sniper by day three who never shot beyond 250 yeah. yards. Um, so she, she proudly and, and lovingly handed him, um, his bind <laughs> on test day. So it's not hard to learn it. But um, there's a lot of rules once they get beyond 500 yards that if they don't train knowing what the rules are, they're sort of throwing their hand in with luck. What what percentage of hit rate? Like, I don't know. The, the, my philosophy behind it is if you want to shoot that distance, you need to be able to hit that target 10 out of 10 times and have no margin of error. I mean, is that feasible or or... My off basis? I think a good way to test yourself is like um, how I would do it is go to the range and on days you're actually working to test your own skill set is run what we call the gauntlet. You know, start at 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, one shot at each distance. And how far can you go till you have mm. your first miss? And so if you can consistently run those plates up to 700 yards, then now no longer lead up to it. Go to the range and for five days every morning and see if you can't hit that on the first shot. Yeah. Um, and I, I think... The, go ahead. I was going to say the hardest thing for a shooter to do isn't to tune up on a target. It's to hit it on the first round. Yeah. Because they're not warmed up. Well, it's, that's what matters um, in the hunting world anyways. The cold board shots is, is the, the most important round. Yeah. It is. There's there's things called we call... Um, one of the subjects I talk a lot about is called group therapy and how to train out of that. Um, to, to get away from and learn how to be a first round shooter. Um, but yeah, you're right for sure. Oh, take us through that a little bit. So uh, the, my definition of a marksman is to get on the rifle from the standing position, uh, prone, shoot, get off the rifle, wait two minutes, get back down, rebuild the same position and hit the same spot. It's most people struggle with that because in order to do that, you have to build the same exact position perfectly you have to touch the rifle in every spot the same exact way from your hand fingers face shoulders pressures um it's the hardest thing for people to do um and so there's ways to train with that and get away from shooting groups it's um shoot one shot get off the rifle go to another bullseye shoot another shot get off the rifle wait and you'll get you'll get into a rhythm where getting on the rifle and building your position from scratch is natural. It's, it's no longer uncomfortable because most people when they go to the range, they get on the gun, they start shooting and they continue shooting. They never rebuild their position. Building your position means like adopting like your form going through your shot process. Yeah. Is like cheek, correct? Like cheek weld mm-hmm. and all the rest like you do with archery. Okay. Yeah. It would almost be like though setting your bow down and walking away. Yep. And coming back and picking your bow up from scratch and shooting it and setting it down and walking away. You can't get the, you don't get to touch it, feel it. It's not still in your hand. You have to redo it over and over again. For marksmen, it's a good, valuable training tool. Um, it gets you comfortable from the, from the go position rather than the tuned up position. The other, at, the other at least 50% of long range shooting, hunting in my mind. So there's, there's the bit about, you know, as the distance increases, your chances of maiming an animal increase. But the other, the other dimension is, at some distances, it becomes a fair chase issue. And I, we don't need to like 
dwell on that for a long time, but that's what makes me a little, that, that, that's what, where my struggle, ethical struggle is, is well with both for sure with both, but Mm -hmm. the latter one, I mean, there is some distance beyond, which is kind of ridiculous. Well, I think what's terrible is, um, in terms of like, just the, it's not hunt. It doesn't feel like hunting. There's no sneaking anymore or anything. So, oh, you lose yeah. the stock. Well, yeah. I think the the biggest foul is 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 gimmicky and telling people to buy this equipment and just do this and you'll hit it. Um, the equipment is only half the battle. The the marksmanship near it's um, it's fundamentals, environmental, and mechanical uh, involved in making long range shots. And you know, there's a lot of uh, long range quote unquote hunting rifles that you buy, and they just turn here and hit this, and you'll hit every time. But you, sh- you got to be able to drive that you mean, car. You and mean so, that I can't yeah. shoot a thousand yards out of the box? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can, but hitting is a little yeah. different. <laughs> no, that's yeah, that's something so, that I mean. What is your what is your opinion about like that advertising? You know, because I mean, we all know who it is that advertise. That's their main. That's yeah. their main slogan. You know, a thousand yards out of the box. Now, I mean, that's oh, Omar, you can say who it is. It's Gunworks. Okay, that's yeah, that's mm. their main advertising slogan is, is a thousand yards out of the box, and I think that a lot of the animals that get wounded and maimed are from guys that have no absolutely no practice. They go buy one of those guns and think that you know, oh, now I can shoot six hundred yards, and they go out there and shoot something in the ass. And I think they do a good job at. at- they're trying to get people in for the schools and help train them up. But the advertisement part of it of telling them that if you buy this and just follow, use this range finder and dial here, you're going to hit. But fundamentals, that's not true. Even though the rifle is probably capable without you. So they give them a little false hope that they gives them the qualifications. And um, I, I think it does. I think it, it leads. We've seen many of the rifles come through here to the school and a lot of them with different apps and programs and, a lot of them fall apart at distance. There's, you have to fix your dope at distance. So even though they've chronographed it and gave you a dope, yeah, but chart, that's at a certain um, that's at a certain can, elevation with a certain ammunition with a barrel that might is. not be broken in. And there's like a thousand that's thousand right. different variables that'll change that stuff. Your dope, yeah, 180 rounds yeah. later, your dope is no mm-hmm. longer good. And I mean, um, if you're shooting, if you're so, shooting yeah. at zero feet elevation and you go up to nine thousand feet elevation, that's a completely different dope set, you know. I would say most people can learn out the 700 pretty efficiently. And, you know, me personally, I'm a long range varmint hunter. I'm not going to lie. I've got lots of critters like woodchucks and stuff like that beyond a thousand yards. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. It's just, if you want to consider yourself a big game hunter, and this isn't <laughs> about like, this is not, again, this is not about that's a, the discussion you guys have been having. And it's incredibly worthwhile is, What's a responsible shot if you're worried about wounding something? But then the other side of it is like, at what point is it just kind of not hunting anymore? You know, and with varmints, I don't care what people do. I don't think, you know. Yeah, I, I consider varmint hunting of, just an application it, of skills. <laughs> yeah, you're just if you're just killing pest species. Right. But, I mean. If if hunting became, we say we're doing the farmer a favor, but to be honest with you, we're having fun while we're doing yeah. it. And I say this all the time, but if you could just sit on your couch and have a rifle mounted under a game cam, and you somehow could just punch a punch a button when the deer came through, 
They're, do you like, remember that guy in Texas that did that? Yeah, there's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Somebody did that years ago, and um, they shut him down because they didn't have a Texas MLS who allowed him to pull the trigger over the internet. Right, right. That's game. right. It's that's crazy. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. That's well, yeah, I, I get, that's, I get what you're saying. I, I'm following what you're saying, Matt. You're, you're saying at what point does it become no longer fair chase or or no longer a, a hunt? Mm. It's just your, your, you know, the animal's not. But I mean, at the same time, don't you want the animal never to be aware that you're there? No. I mean, that even in bow mm. hunting, I I want that when I'm bow hunting, I don't want the, the buck or the, the bull to know I'm there. But I, I, it's completely different. So, little unfair advantage, basically. They yeah. don't know they're being stalked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm for the ethical soapbox sometimes. Oh, um, yeah. It, the people tough. on both sides, they get, they get, they, they get really heated. get after they each other. Heated. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's I, a I, tough thing. Cause that's a good point. I mean, you don't it, like, at least you're not shooting at something that's running away or whatever, you know, we, I don't, we passed up hiring a guy. Um, and hopefully doesn't listen to our podcast, but because they do a lot of really long range hunting and it's, uh, he had applied and I recognized the name and started talking about, um, some of the stuff that they were doing and, I, I couldn't hire him because I wouldn't want him for saying that to our customers. We let the customers make their own decision on what they feel is an ethical shot. I, I, I can't shame them and to believe in what I believe. But at the same time, I don't want him portraying that that we say, yeah, hey, we should be shooting a deer at eleven and twelve hundred yards because that's nothing that we would we would tell customers, hey, this is what we do and we have fun doing it. Um, yeah, you don't want to come out do. for it or against it. You want to just have a neutral right. take on it, which is yes, a businessman is. Yeah is is smart I, I still find there's a lot of people out there that um that still try to stay within their limits and know what they're at and you know they they sort of they'll listen to the conversations but they're not, probably not enjoying or want to be part of that you know it's not their cup of tea yeah oh you know it's like one thing that i can be i'm clear on is that well i like i just don't think much behind beyond personally I don't have, I am like much beyond 400 yards with the rifle. Like animal can't even detect your presence. It has no way. So to me, that's mm -hmm. like a, where I draw the line personally, but here it does seem, inc and, and I'm not like, it's not, I'm not, I'm not adamant about it. It's not one of the things that I have a really strong stance on. It's just kind of where I've mm -hmm. where, I, where I come down on it. But what I clearly don't like is clearly think is problematic is people celebrating the lengths of their shots on mm. social media and hunting tv i mean yeah. it just it, it, with bows and rifles yeah because i just think it encourages irresponsible behavior well, and they don't always tell the truth either yeah i've heard of shows where um i have clients that have been on hunts with lots of different people over the years and friends and where they'll, they'll, I, they'll take a rock left of the animal at 900 yards filming for a TV show. They'll shoot at the rock four or five times to get the wind dialed in. And then they turn the cameras on and talk to the camera saying, here's how we do it. Just dial this and hold here. They shoot and the animal falls dead. Oh, so there's a, yeah. there's a lot of disingenuous with stuff like that, too. They're, they're not really telling the whole truth. They had a whole 10-minute shooting gallery trying to figure out what to do with the wind suppressed, you know, before they mm -hmm. took the shot on film. My so, dad yeah. was... My dad was a forward observer in World War II. Do you know what that is? Oh, yeah. That's crazy. So he would go uh, in front of the lines 
he would have a radio and they would start the the Americans would start in in his case would be start shooting shells at the German tanks and they weren't like they were like some kind of shell that didn't have shrapnel in it, it just had smoke in it and based on where they'd hit my dad would go okay 30 yards to the right now 30 yards closer like until they were dialed in and then he'd say fire for effect and then they would start so he's a, a spotter oh. for the artillery yeah 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 mm-hmm. so that's what this reminds me of this shooting at the rock and, yeah and at that distance the animal the only thing the animal here is probably is the bullet hitting against the rock yeah and if they're you know shooting 100 yards left or 200 yards left or right in that direction yeah they might not hear it at all you're right oh so they might yeah. pick a rock that's like way away equal distance but way away yeah mm-hmm. yeah Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's um, I think, think they, sh- they show it a little bit too easier than it, it is sometimes. And then they don't tell the whole truth. They just show the highlight reel. It's like the highlight reel film on Facebook, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. life. But um, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. We get a lot of people to come through um, that want to learn the art of it. And they, their skill sets are probably much further than what they'll actually take their shots. So I'm a lot of our clients are very proud of that they'll they have the wherewithal to get closer, even though they know they could probably hit it better than most. Um, yeah. And then they come and they get the education, which I think if you want to shoot at those distances, you learn it. it it's a skill. It's an art. You know, you can you can really become quite a marksman at distance. But I find that most people that learn it actually are probably more on a conservative side than those that don't. Yeah, that seems proper to, to me. That seems proper to me. Be able to shoot as far as you possibly can, be as accurate as you can, then get as close as you can. Yeah. 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 Sneak closer. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's the principle that I I love to shoot. So, I mean, I'll shoot paper really far, as far as I can, the longest range I can find. But when it comes to the hunting side of it, I mean, unless there's a canyon in in the way of me and the game, I'm going to try to get as close as I can. I want the, the best chance of success, you know? Hey, here it said all the time, shot placement is key, and you got to be able to hit that exact where you want. And the further out it is, the more critical it is because you lose a lot of energy. Yep. Your bullets don't perform yeah. as well. And so you're you're shooting your worst, but you got you got to hit your mm-hmm. best. And that's a that's the recipe for disaster distance for some people. Sure. Do you think that the, the latest, I mean, trend and influence from like social media and stuff is, is pushing people to shoot further. I mean, not on the, not in the like competition world. I'm talking in the hunting world. I mean, I feel like the latest developments and newest stuff is all geared towards shooting really long ranges, you know? It is. And it's, um, it's, I think it's opening people eyes that it can be done and it's not as hard as they think either. So like, um, like PCP air guns, where guys are shooting and engaging targets at three and 400 yards with an air rifle. Yeah. That's crazy to me. <laughs> yeah. And so people, people are realizing the equipment is so good now, as long as they pick the right equipment, that the rifles are more than capable. The now all they got to do is get behind the wheel and drive. And it's fun. It, you know, you start hitting stuff at those distances and you, your mind, you're like, well, that's almost impossible. And um, there you are ringing a, a 10 inch piece of plate at a thousand yards. 
um, that people can hardly see with their naked eyes. It's pretty cool. So it's a good thing. Um, but then you've got the whole ethical part of it, you know, and equipment, you know, it matters. Good quality equipment. If you're really going to take this seriously and hunt and you think they're going to be a little bit positive than normal shots, you can't, you can't go out there with garbage equipment and expect it to perform a distance either, you know? Yeah. All right, gentlemen. Uh, I think we're going to wrap this up. Jamie, I really appreciate you coming on. Wolf Precision, they obviously take a lot of pride in doing very good manufacturing using state-of-the-art technology. They're this, a small company that doesn't feed in all the hype and BS. So check them out. And uh, thanks, you guys. Thanks, Omar. Yep. Um, you guys have a good night. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. It was nice to sound finally seeing you, uh, yeah. Omar. Yeah. yeah. Um, getting a face with the conversation. Well, yeah. Well, and when I was on your podcast, we didn't even <laughs> see each other. It was just kind of. No. Well, thanks for the invite. I've walked around my house a thousand times while I just bitched and moaned about <laughs> I all did my the pet. same. Um, I did the same. Well, so, thanks for having me yeah. on. I appreciate it. If you ever want to resume the conversation again or um, get out our way, please feel free to stop by and drag out the range a little bit and do some shooting with a rifle. Yeah. I would love to learn a, learn a thing or two from you. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Good night, guys. All right. See you. Thanks. Take care. Good night.